This episode of Oppo is brought to you in part by FreshBooks. Track your time, send beautiful invoices, get paid faster. FreshBooks is so useful for small businesses and freelancers like myself. Give it a shot with a free 30-day trial. Just go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO. This holiday season, why not be generous to your future self? You can open up an online investing account with Wealthbar, and then you can just sit back and watch your money grow. Wealthbar gives you access to the same investment strategies that millionaires use at fees that are less than half of traditional investments. Wealthbar has a special offer for Oppo listeners. If you open an account today, you get $100 towards growing your money. Just visit wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand to find out more. From CanadaLand, this is Oppo. I'm Justin Ling in Montreal, and I've spent all week practicing how to say nuclear properly. And I'm Jen Gerson, and I'll have you know, Justin, that it is pronounced nuclear. 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 We're getting there. On this week's show, turtle under your desks, because by popular demand, we're finally talking about nuclear energy. And the anti-Alberta conspiracy emanating from the European elites expands to Moody's Investor Services. Then we answer Canada's most Googled question. Is Andrew Scheer still leader of the Conservative Party of Canada? This episode of Oppo is brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks is a cloud accounting software that's designed to save you time every time you use it. It's so easy to use, FreshBooks says it can save you 16 hours per month on paperwork. With FreshBooks, you can create, customize, and send branded and professional-looking invoices in about 30 seconds. You can combine FreshBooks automation and payments, set up subscription-based billing, and get paid without lifting a finger. You can save credit card info for easy billing later, then set up recurring billing profiles for specific clients, or add automation and create subscription-based client profiles. It's very neat and very versatile. All of this means that invoicing with FreshBooks gets you paid twice as quickly. And if you have any trouble, you can connect with their award-winning customer support. Listeners like you can try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Just go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. So this week in Western, and by that we mean Alberta and not BC and Saskatchewan, except maybe Saskatchewan because they're kind of angry too, but definitely not Manitoba. Alienation Corner! So you may or may not be aware of this, but Alberta's credit rating was downgraded by Moody's. And of course, uh, this is the NDP's fault. Somehow. Moody's gave this completely reasonable, rational overview of the state of Alberta's economy and the entirely predictable risks and liabilities facing the provincial government, especially in the face of, you know, declining oil royalties, too much dependence on oil and gas, and fairly considerable uh, spending cuts with no reasonable um, taxation revenue measures attached to it. Fair. Yeah, it was a completely predictable report from, from Moody's. Like, nobody could argue with the substance of, of the report at all, except for Jason Kenney, who said, the financial institutions, including Moody's, are, and I quote, buying into the political agenda emanating from Europe, which is trying to stigmatize development of hydrocarbon energy. And I just think they are completely factually wrong. Yeah, Moody's part of the big socialist conspiracy, apparently. 
it's really hard for me to um, shade or hide my contempt for this statement. A lot of people, myself included, have been warning this government for literally years that whether you like it or not, banks, organizations, investment funds, and companies are going to start making investments away from greenhouse gas intensive projects like the oil sands. That doesn't mean that the oil sands are going to totally dry up. It doesn't mean that our use of oil and gas is going to totally dry up. But you're going to start to see, you know, shifts of, of, of investment flows away from things like the oil sands and into stuff that's a little bit cleaner. Because that's really what customers are demanding. And it's what investors are demanding. So for Moody's to point out that that presents an a liability to Alberta's oil and gas sector is completely accurate. So for them to say, hey, we know you've been warning us about this for years, but we're still going to um, blame this entirely predictable shift on some kind of like Eastern Central Bank elite conspiracy theory is insane and dumb. And I think that if the shoes were on the other foot and you had the NDP complaining about a downgrade by using this kind of rhetoric and language, you'd have the conservatives all over it saying, this just shows that, you yeah. know, a government like the NDP is totally unfit to manage finances, and they would be right. They're deleveraging their own financial situation because they can't find new sources of revenue, and they're going to be staring at an absolute budget crunch in the next 15 years, and, and that's that's what leads to your credit rating getting downgraded. You're absolutely right, except for the fact that, I mean, if, if the Kenny government sticks to this plan, which isn't so radically different from the from the NDP plan, I will also point out, you know, they're saying we will be back in, in balance within a couple of years. So so fine, except that that plan requires some pretty considerable but not drastic spending restraint. I mean, I think it's like a, they're cutting spending by like 3% yeah. essentially, which isn't like austerity, but it also um, requires a certain degree of, I think I'll quote Moody's here, political discipline in order to maintain that, especially if you have now labor unions striking and walking out. Um, and then the other problem I fundamentally have with with the way that the this government and previous governments have approached the budget is that it maintains the dependence on oil and gas royalties. A lot of your um, expectation of coming back into balance um, hinges on the idea that, you know, oil is going to bounce back at least a little bit. Well, what if it doesn't? Or what's more, you know, if we face a recession and suddenly the government exactly. is facing less tax revenue and a need for more spending, um, you know, and, and this this is why your credit rating, you know, gets downgraded. It's because suddenly you are a less trustworthy uh, lendee because the guarantee of you being able to pay back on time um, and and you know is less. And that that's simply going to be true for the for the, for the Alberta government if if things go kind of to shit. In the midst of all this, you have Kenny, who's like cut corporate taxes. Who you have an used to be government that seems to be totally unwilling willing to look at revenue measures and only will look at uh, uh, cutting as, as, as a solution to any of these problems and not cutting even enough to get us off the dependence on, on royalties. I mean, if I were Moody's, this is exactly the, the, the report that I would have written too. The downgrade was justified, completely deserved. It wasn't some kind of great conspiracy. And this is just insane, stupid, idiotic rhetoric that I have nothing but contempt for. Really more of a downgrade. I don't understand that joke. Red carpet rolled out for the beginning of this 43rd session of Parliament. The speech from the throne, which officially begins this session of Parliament and this government's work. If you've been watching federal politics over the last week, there is a whole bunch of really not exciting things that have happened. I mean, let's be real. Jeff Regan, the former Speaker of the House of Commons, lost his bid to become Speaker once again, losing to Anthony Rhoda. Eh, meh. Uh, we had a throne speech from the government, which was filled with platitudes and even less detail about the legislative agenda than normal. It is a mandate to fight climate change, strengthen the middle class, walk the road of reconciliation. 
Of course, the only thing that anyone finds interesting these days on Parliament Hill, which understandably is the future of Andrew Scheer. That's why we're going to introduce a new segment on Oppo this week, the Andrew Scheer Leadership Death Watch. As ever more disgruntled Tory strategists come out of the woodwork to call for a leadership review, Andrew Scheer has mounted a full-throated defense. I mean, not actually. He mostly has Senator Denise Batters coming out with a whole bunch of tweets and very uninspiring social videos. But nevertheless, it seems to be enough for now. You've heard people like, of course, Ontario Proud head Jeff Bollingall on last week's show say that they think Andrew Scheer will be gone by the new year. It's looking less and less likely, and it seems he'll be able to survive at least until maybe February. Hot damn. This holiday season, why don't you wrap a little present just for you with Wealth Bar? It makes great investing ridiculously easy. If you open an RRSP or a tax-free savings account online, all you have to do is sit back, pour yourself a hot cup of cocoa, and watch your money grow. Seriously, you don't even have to change it out of those festive jammies. This is one less thing you'll have to shop for this holiday season. With demonstrated performance, it's a gift that keeps on giving. Literally. Wealthbar manages and balances your portfolio for you so your money stays on track effortlessly. And with fees that are less than half of the cost of traditional investments, your money grows faster with Wealthbar. Contribute to your Wealthbar RRSP before the February 29th deadline and you'll be giving yourself a bigger tax return. Right now, Wealthbar has a special offer for Oppo listeners. Open an account online and you get a hundred bucks towards growing your money. Start investing online in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand. So on Oppo, we get a lot of correspondence from listeners. We get emails telling us to be nicer to Justin Trudeau, tweets telling us we're Western imperialist dogs, late night phone calls from an angry Andrew Scheer, and of course notes written in cutout magazine print wrapped around bricks thrown through our windows telling us that we're doing a pretty good job. But the one thing we hear more than anything else is talk about nuclear power. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Now, before we begin, I feel like we need to offer an important qualifier. We know next to nothing about nuclear power. Hey, Justin, I will have you know that I stayed up until 3 a.m. last night cuddling a sick baby and researching arcane details of fourth-generation nuclear reactors so I could totally fake this segment. <laughs> you gotta fake it till you make it. But to bolster our total ignorance in this area, I did chat with Richard Carlson, who is the director of energy policy at an organization called Pollution Probe, and he offered a really great, concise overview of the pros and the cons of nuclear energy. What are some of the most frustrating things that you find when you talk about the possibilities and the risks of uh, nuclear energy in addressing uh, greenhouse gas emissions and climate change issues? Well, there's a couple of things. One, nuclear is one of the most religious of all energy sources. And people who are against it are very against it. And the people who are for it are very for it. So it's hard to have kind of a neutral pros and cons discussion about what nuclear could play, what are the trade-offs with nuclear, and are they acceptable to people? And I think it's also important to recognize that like every energy source has trade-offs. There's not one perfect silver bullet out there. So it's really down to what kind of trade-offs do we accept? And it's hard to have that discussion when both sides of the discussion are very polarized. Let's kind of sum up the pro and the anti side. Um, for the people who are religiously against nuclear, what are their major objections? And what of those objections are legitimate? And what of them are just kind of a little pie in the sky? Well, the major objection to nuclear is mostly around safety. 
and those are legitimate concerns. We have seen in Canada that we've been able to do it quite safely, and it's, I don't have huge concerns about the safety of nuclear reactors in Canada, but there has been experiences internationally, Chernobyl and Fukushima, that have definitely scared people. What's different about Canada? Why couldn't Canada be subject to a Chernobyl-like nuclear reactor explosion? Well, if anyone has seen the Chernobyl miniseries, that was somewhat inaccurately, but somewhat accurately as well, shows some of the problems. And that was, it was a bad reactor design. So it didn't have the fail-safes and the safety systems that are common in Canadian reactors. So is it a matter that we've learned from those mistakes, or is it that um, there was something sort of unique to the nuclear culture in, in Soviet Russia that just made it more likely to happen there? Uh, a bit of both. I believe that the reactor design was problematic. It wasn't designed to be a civilian reactor. It was really designed to be a nuclear, uh, to make materials for nuclear weapons, and it was adapted for civilian use. So it wasn't a particularly good design on the safety side because it wasn't that was not his concern when it was developed. On the other hand, we've also learned a lot from that to make sure that the now there are passive security systems, passive safety systems in new, modern nuclear reactors. So, but what about from Fukushima in Japan? I mean, what went wrong with Fukushima then? Well, Fukushima was because of the earthquake that led to the tidal wave that then flooded the the cooling systems. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the cooling systems that were designed to back up were flooded and were unable to work, so therefore it overheated. But we have seismic areas here in, in Canada, and I can be somewhat sympathetic to uh, people who are concerned about uh, nuclear energy when the defense of nuclear energy is always like, oh, yeah, there are safety risks, but it could never happen here, it could never happen here, and then it, it happens, right? It happens in Three Mile Island, it happens in Japan, it happens in Chernobyl. Yeah, nothing is ever perfect, and to say it, it could never happen here is possibly inaccurate. I'd say it could happen here, but it is unlikely. So what, what, is, what makes it so unlikely here? The Kanda reactor is a safer reactor as well, so it, it may, that solves some of those problems. We're also not sited on a seismic active area, so we're not going to have the concerns with uh, tidal waves and other issues around that. So Canada is just more geographically stable? In Ontario, yes. Right, and oh, presumably also that? through a lot, a lot of the prairie provinces as well. Yeah, so if you're going to site, for example, a reactor in BC, you would have to take that into consideration. I thought that was really interesting because over the last week, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, Doug Ford, and New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs signed a memo of understanding to collaborate on the development and deployment of nuclear reactors known as small modular reactors, um, which are being produced um, by a Canadian company called Arc Nuclear. And small modular reactors are really, really interesting because unlike traditional giant Chernobyl-esque nuclear reactors, these are things that are kind of produced in a modular fashion so they're kind of produced in like say a factory somewhere and then they're shipped wholesale to the site where they're needed which hypothetically allows you to provide nuclear energy at a fraction of the cost of building a giant plant also some of these um, modular reactors are much much safer than traditional reactors they have a lot of passive safety controls Um, they don't have to be staffed by nearly as many people and they present a lot of opportunity for example say you live in a remote community and you don't have access to clean reliable energy if you can install one of these modular reactors, now all of a sudden you have like a 20, 30 year um, uh, nuclear re- reactor on site. You have clean energy, greenhouse gas efficient energy um, that can be provided very cheaply and safely to your community. What are like the realistic worst case scenarios of some of these newer, smaller reactors? There's different technologies. A lot of these small modular reactors use different technology to what is used in conventional uh pressurized water reactors that we mostly currently use in in the world. Um, And none of them are inherently safe. Some of them, for example, use uh, molten salts, and some of them also use gas as a coolant. So they are, if the cooling system ever does shut off, 
they would not overheat like you would have in Fukushima or Chernobyl. It's going to be a while before we figure out how to make them um, safe enough and reliable enough and cheap enough that we can deploy them and let communities run it themselves. But we, we've been using small modular reactors to power things like, you know, battleships, submarines and aircraft carriers for some time now. This is not completely revolutionary. The idea that you could have a small nuclear reactor powering, um, you know, a, a much smaller scale, you know, item like a, like a ship. Um, and yeah, the whole, and so actually, you know, beyond just the three conservative premiers getting together and discussing this idea. The federal government actually put together, you know, with some kind of investment money, a, a roadmap um, that is supposed to provide some sort of direction for how the federal government could sort of go ahead in either regulating them or actually purchasing them or to deploying them to, say, indigenous communities in the high north. Um, and it came, they came out with this roadmap last year, and it's it's vague. It, there's a lot of kind of vague optimism in it. Uh, the government has not created an action plan. The, the sorts of innovations that we, we would need to see on some of these um, uh, things are, are, they're about 10 years off, 10 to 15 years off, Yeah. which isn't to say it can't be done. I mean, but, you know, because this stuff is so heavily regulated, because the technology is relatively new and, and, and not deployed in this particular fashion, it's going to be a few years yet before you can see these. And also, you know, I don't think that these small modular reactors are going to necessarily be able to totally replace place the need for large nuclear reactors as well. But if you have this vision of large large nuclear reactors as like something out of The Simpsons or something out of Chernobyl, you might want to do a little bit of research about the advances that have been made. Because by about 2030, 2040, we should start to see the availability of something called fourth generation nuclear reactors come online. And these are dramatically safer than previous generations of nuclear reactors. That's right. Um, but I talked to Richard a little bit about that. And, you know, it's interesting to chat with him because no energy source is perfect. Every single energy source has benefits and trade-offs. And one of the big benefits of nuclear is, of course, that it's hugely energy dense. You need a relatively small amount of land, a relatively small amount of fuel to provide basically enormous amounts of electricity for um, the populace. It's the most energy dense source of energy that we have, period. Um, and because of that, there are a lot of huge environmental benefits of deploying nuclear en masse. However, there are downsides. And of course, um, when people envision nuclear, they picture Chernobyl. They picture vast swathes of land totally contaminated by radioactive um, fallout and, and radiation. And a lot of those fears are unfounded. So paint a picture for me of like the worst case scenario, all the fail safe fail, something just goes dramatically, horrendously wrong. Perhaps climate change has destroyed civilization and humanity is no longer manning these reactors or, or maintaining them properly and the whole thing just blows up. Like what does a terrible, terrible catastrophic event look like for these modular reactors? It would depend on the technology that's being used. It would depend on the technology. Okay. But are we talking, just in general, are we talking like all of North America is now uninhabitable? Or are we talking with something closer to what happened in Fukushima where, you know, you now have a couple of hundred square kilometers that are uninhabitable? Given the size of them, because they are, the plan is to have these uh, small reactors. So you'd probably have something more similar to what happened in Fukushima. It wouldn't be a giant thermonuclear explosion. There would still be radiation leakage and an explosion, but it would not be... It would not be on the scale of what happened in, for example, a nuclear, a nuclear bomb. 
Well, and I, this is also something that I think people need to be a bit conscious of when we're talking about Fukushima, because Fukushima was probably one of the worst case scenarios of a modern nuclear reactor failing, although I yeah. think that the safety and risk factors in Fukushima was much higher than anything we'd be proposing here in Canada. But at the same time, all of Japan is not uninhabitable <laughs> now. Like, it's a couple of square kilometers that people actually even do, you know, quite grotesquely, they do tourist trips to, to go examine, right? Um, so, I mean, Fukushima was bad. It was It was awful. But it's not like, you know, you're now making entire swaths of human civilization totally uninhabitable for people. It's, it's a manageable level of bad, is my understanding. Yeah, they seem to be managing it quite well. And it is a very expensive to clean up, though, at the same time. Right. There are, the TEPCO is spending a lot of money to deal with Fukushima. So with those types of risks, and also, I mean, I imagine there's also the risk of the actual waste product at the end of the day. What do we do about the waste product? Yes, that's a constant concern and something that we do have to deal with. And it's an ongoing issue. You see the federal government has, there's the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. They're looking to find suitable hosts across Canada. And I think they've, they've narrowed it down to two communities, sort of around Georgian Bay and Ontario as potential host communities. When we're talking about nuclear, we have to think about risk assessment. Yes. There is no completely perfect energy source at our disposal, but what would be the worst possible case scenario and then work back our risk assessment from there, right? Like if there is a one in 10,000 chance of one of these small nuclear reactors, even a larger fourth generation nuclear reactor blowing up, what does that worst case scenario look like? Right. Um, Even if it is only a one in 10,000 chance. Well, the one in 10,000 chance is a lot closer to okay, we have a really ugly, messy cleanup situation and we have um, some a couple square kilometers that are uninhabitable for the next thousand years. Like that is a bad case scenario, but it's not like, you know, we're depopulating Ontario. You know what I mean? Like that's the balance you got to keep in mind. And if you are taking climate change seriously as a, as a, as a civilizational threat to humanity, for me, like, okay, well, all of civilization is toast or potentially the worst case scenario, the unlikely case scenario is that, you know, you have a couple of square kilometers of polluted radioactive land. That's kind of a no brainer. That is your primer for those who, you know, have not heard much about uh, nuclear energy, kind of like us, now that we've done a little bit of our homework. Um, I mean, you know, there is the possibility of small modular reactors working either in small scale communities, or there's a possibility that governments could purchase a large quantity of them and power entire kind of areas of the country that might not have other opportunities. You know, there is still conversations going on about um, creating safe, modern nuclear reactors and nuclear facilities that are that are bigger, that are similar to the two that we have in Ontario and the one that we have in in New Brunswick, but a little bit more modern. And then, of course, there are the people who will say never nuclear. You know, the folks who are just adamantly uh, obsessed with the idea that either we're going to create Chernobyl or that we can never dispose of nuclear waste properly, and therefore we should just absolutely banish the idea altogether. And some of those would even say that we need to shut down the three facilities we have running already. A lot of that objection is frankly superstitious, in my opinion. Yes, it is. So, Justin, I think that if we are going to talk about the possibility of nuclear energy, we got to take the counterfactual argument into consideration here. And that is, look, considering there is still this low-risk, low-probability prospect of a bad thing happening, why not consider renewable energies where we know there's relatively no risk of such a bad thing happening? Why not just do 
solar and wind. And, and this is primarily the argument of anti-nuclear activists is, you know, we have all of these other renewable, reliable, safe technologies. Why not just go all in on those? Here's the problem. Renewables aren't a perfect energy source. Um, I think people tend to um, cotton on to new renewables because there's something that feels very natural and in harmony with the natural environment about getting your energy from um, solar and, and wind, for example. However, there are some real problems with solar and wind, and we can't necessarily wave our hands away to make them go away. Wind power is horrendously inefficient. It takes enormous amounts of land commitment in order to create any kind of sustainable path with wind power. I mean, I saw some statistics that suggested that if you were to be able to create like a third of the United States' energy needs by 2050, you would need something like 66,000 kilometers of land devoted to wind power. And to put that into perspective, that's about the size of Sri Lanka. It's not impossible, but there are other potential problems with, you know, biodiversity. It's important to note that as time goes forward, we're going we're gonna to see better efficiencies in those technologies uh, and the transmission. So the, the amount of land you'll need will eventually go down to some degree. Potentially, but here's my problem with this. Richard makes this really, really great point, and that is conservatives have a tendency to sort of delay any kind of climate change action by just saying, well, we're going to innovate our way out of the problem. So therefore, we don't need to worry about doing anything right now. But my objection to what Richard is saying here is that, you know, the left tends to do this too. For example, one of the major problems with wind and solar is that they only produce electricity when it's windy or sunny. And so the left's response to this is always, well, you just wait. We're going to create some kind of massive lithium-ion battery storage that will completely solve this problem. And so um, when the sun is out and the wind is shining, we'll fill up these batteries. And then, you know, at nighttime or when the wind goes down or when the seasonal peaks start to drop, then we'll start to, to pull from these batteries. Yeah, we run into some real physical hurdles here that we have not been able to innovate our way out of. In order to create those batteries at the type of capacity that you would need, you're now spending huge amounts of money. Also, you know, lithium-ion batteries aren't necessarily environmentally safe as well. Yeah. The other thing I would point out about solar here you know, solar isn't necessarily super clean. I mean, just because you get it from the sun doesn't necessarily make it a super clean energy. The actual stuff that's in the panels is not great for the environment. What happens to the panels after they live out their, their uh, you know, 20, 20, 25 year life cycle? And then the other thing is, you know, if you are going to create giant solar panel farms and you're going to like cover, say, the desert with, with, with solar panels, that's actually hugely destructive to natural land and habitat, you know, because it's, think about it, you're just putting a giant panel over natural ground. That ground now becomes unusable for farmland, it becomes unusable for wildlife. Now, wind is really interesting because you can potentially use landmass in a different kind of way with wind. Like you can put windmills on farmland, for example, and you can have farmers farming around windmills. So it's a way that farmers can, can extract more value from the land that they own. However, when we're talking about like landmasses the size of Sri Lanka, um, we're talking about a gigantic shift to the, to the actual visual aesthetic of the natural landscape. And also it means getting a lot of buy-in from private landowners that you may or may not get. So it's not a catch-all. There is no magic bullet solution to some of our energy needs um, when we're talking about climate change. I mean, the reality is these are these are kind of primordial problems about renewables. But I think that, you know, a big point is to what percentage can you get? So, I mean, for those not aware, Canada's electric supply is actually probably cleaner than you think. We already get about 60% of our energy from hydro, 15% is nuclear, 9% is coal, 10% is oil, gas, and others. And then 7% is currently other renewables like solar and wind. So so the equation is, okay, you, so that 19% is roughly those, you know, fossil fuels you want to get rid of. So you need to get that 7% to, um, you know, 20 
what is that? Twenty six percent. I'm good at math. Um, because you know the reality is we probably don't have that much more room to expand our hydro dams. There was already tremendous opposition. Hydro is a great source. It's not perfect. Well, also, hydro is very geographically limited. Exactly. And, and so here's the thing. So either you need to find um, you know enough capacity to grow that seven percent uh, renewables to cover what you're removing in oil and gas and coal uh, plants closing. Or you need to consider leveraging nuclear. And there's also a version of this. A lot of environmentalists want to shut down our nuclear plants as well. So that only makes the magnitude of the problem even more difficult. If you are thinking like I am, that we are going to go to these nice, clean electric cars, where do you think that electricity is going to come from? Now, Richard seems to think that you don't necessarily need more electricity in the system if we just get smarter about how we create grids and, and when people can charge their electric cars and all sorts of I don't necessarily buy that because I think that physics, it's physics. And if you are going to start transplanting a lot of the energy that we expend through internal combustion engines and oil and gas and replacing that with energy through electric cars, that extra energy is going to come from somewhere. Where are you going to get all this extra energy if there's a limited amount of increased capacity you can get from uh, wind and solar. What I thought was great about uh, your conversation with Richard is that you know he, what he keeps saying is you know nothing is a solution. Everything is part of the solution. And this is what really frustrates me about the fact that we never hear about these you know about nuclear as part of the equation is that I think we all agree that there's probably a little bit room for more hydro projects. You know, hopefully, fingers crossed. Churchill Falls comes online in Labrador in a, in, in, a, in a reasonable and safe way, and we can get more energy from from there um, to get the East Coast off home heating oil and to sell some to the states, and you know, and and, and so on. Um, and hopefully, there's a lot more room for wind and solar. But you know, the other part of that is hopefully there's room for some version of nuclear energy, and hopefully we can um, you know get either small modular reactors or larger facilities, and we figure out what to do with the waste. I mean, there's you know there's some conversation about you know where in potentially the north. Um, around the Canadian Shield, can we store um, you know nuclear waste safely in a way that's not going to cause any sort of leakage, which is possible, very doable and possible. But we never hear we never hear this conversation. I mean, you know, the federal government unveiled this this roadmap and talked about it to who exactly? You know, when is the last time you heard serious debate in the House of Commons or on power and politics or wherever? Um, and not that it never happens, but generally you don't hear conversations about nuclear. You hear lots of stuff about uh, carbon pricing, about renewables, but nuclear just seems always to be this forgotten you know stepchild. And when it does come up, it's often in the context of of, you know, nuclear holocaust, we're all going to die. And that's not productive. No, it's not. Look, I mean, we have the most, probably the most energy dense, most powerful solution. And we have the technology right now to make some serious strides on greenhouse gas emissions with nuclear power. That said, you know, as much as I think that this is something that we need to be talking about more and more seriously, and we need to stop being religious and superstitious about it, I don't think that nuclear is the only solution. No. Right. Like hydroelectric is part of the solution for us. Um, I, there is no doubt in my mind that wind and solar are part of the solution. I mean, Alberta has been a fantastic test case for potentially increasing wind power into the electric grid at a fraction of the cost, because the way that we did it here in Alberta was much, much smarter than the yeah. way you did it in Ontario. Um, but I've talked to some people here in Alberta and we've done some back of the napkin math. You know, Alberta is probably the is the top emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. You know, you could take an enormous chunk out of Alberta's greenhouse gas emissions, and therefore a pretty sizable chunk out of the country's greenhouse gas emissions, just by investing in some nuclear power plants in Alberta. Yeah, absolutely. Like the problem that I have with with uh, natural gas is as a way to sort of supplement that baseload energy is that 
it's still producing greenhouse gas. So what, why do that when you can just create nuclear? There's a reason why you have traditional petrochemical companies like Royal Dutch Shell making major investments in things like wind and solar. And it's not just because they are trying to greenwash their own images. Part of it is because they know very well that if you rely on wind and solar, you're still going to be using their product, natural gas, to fill in the gaps. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're all kind of chasing this the same dollar, and they know that you know investing in one will not eliminate the other. The reality is investing in nuclear probably does eliminate coal or natural gas or others entirely in such a way that I think, you know, Shell and, and Petro-Canada would be terrified of. Though, you know, there are other reasonable alternatives here, and maybe they are, they're a part of the nuclear solution as well. I mean, you kind of waved away the, uh, the idea of using kind of large-scale lithium-ion batteries, but we actually just learned this week that a big chunk of Brooklyn is being powered by a huge lithium-ion battery sitting next to a shopping mall. And the government of New York is looking to expand that project and power potentially hundreds of thousands of homes in the next couple of years. The problem is that what do you do when you're like three months into winter and you haven't had a significant amount of sun or wind in several months? Like that's where you start to run into some real physical limitations on lithium-ion batteries, right? And that's where you you have to start supplementing with something else, either nuclear or natural gas or whatever else. These sort of technology technological barriers exist for everything, though. So nuclear is included in that because our coverage of nuclear is so shit. Um, we don't seem to understand even the risks, the rewards, you know, the upscale and the pitfall of these things. We seem to sort of shy away from all things nuclear, and then we sort of, I think, you know, let some of these people escape scrutiny. And I think it's maybe time that governments actually. And, and the media and the public start actually focusing and scrutinizing, um, you know, nuclear energy because you know we need to do it, but also do it right. I, I don't think that there is any technology on the horizon that's going to replace oil and gas for things like freight trains, um, aviation fuel, those those types of really, really, really intensive energy needs that need to be really, really portable. Um, However, Richard made an excellent point, and that said, you know, we can talk about nuclear, we can talk about energy uh, energy generation, and that's a really important part of the conversation to have. But that's not the only conversation we're having when we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions. Especially in Canada, we need to talk about home heating. What are you going to do for home heating? Most of us rely on natural gas to keep our very cold homes warm at night. Industrial applications, like maybe small small modular nuclear is, is appropriate in kind of remote industrial applications and mines and things like that. There's really a lot of interesting potential for nuclear like this and uh, oil sands development, right? Because you can put them on site way up in Fort Mac I mean, and, and, and reduce upstream um, emissions pretty significantly. The possibility that small modular nuclear reactors have can be great, but that shouldn't stop us from doing what we can do now. And we, yeah, we should invest in R&D on, on SMRs to see if we can get them to market, but we should be doing what we can do now and rolling out renewables, demand response, and also looking at other sectors of the economy, because electricity is actually a relatively small sector of the economy. In Canada, natural gas provides twice as much energy than electricity does mm-hmm. because of our heating requirements. So we also have to think about our heating requirements. And what do we do with that? And looking into other other resources around for heating, such as hydrogen or renewable natural gas as well. You know, cars, individual transportation, how you build your cities, what like city density, like all of these things are part of the conversation about how we reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions. But one of the things that I find most frustrating is that when I hear conservative politicians, you know, either talk about, oh, innovation, innovation will solve it, or um, they create these vague plans and vague promises. I mean, the liberal politicians do this too. Potentially, we're losing an enormous opportunity here in Canada. Like in Canada, we have you know a low population, 
density. We have an extremely educated populace. We have, you know, huge amounts of resources. We should be really at the forefront of whatever future energy mix the world needs. Like we should be an energy superpower, but that shouldn't just mean oil and gas. Yeah, and here's the thing that bothers me too is that you know when I hear people say, well, you know, uh, nuclear might get us part of the way there, or oil, you know, natural resources might get us part of the way there. Part of the way is still better than nowhere. I mean, if we can get to ninety percent renewables, like if we're still, you know, if we still need one coal fire uh, plant or one natural gas plant online to, you know, to help a smaller community or to smooth some of the demand. That's okay. I mean, you know, we have goals to get to carbon neutrality, not to get to zero carbon at all. I mean, you know, and 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 this is an important distinction. I mean, we want to decarbonize as, as soon as possible, but what is really critically important in 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 order to avert climate change is to at least make sure that we're not putting any more carbon into the atmosphere than we're taking out of it. And then in the long run, yes, carbon zero altogether. Um, and and so you know, this sort of all or nothing totalitarian approach isn't working either. We can't say, oh, well, this plant still has one coal fire plant online, therefore the whole plant's useless. You know, the flip side of that too is that um, it, it might require that we keep some trains or airplanes or whatever running diesel. Um, but to offset that, I think, you know, places like Canada can can reach out to other nations and get them into, um, you know, either, either carbon neutrality or to net negative carbon emissions. Because we need to stop thinking about this from a, from a nation state perspective. We can, we can ship either technology or uranium, um, um, or you know whatever to to other states to help them uh, decarbonize faster. I mean, we already do this to some degree. And also expertise, expertise and actual technology. I mean, if if you have three provinces buying up a bunch of uh, small modular nuclear reactors, you know potentially, and we can show that we can do that safely and cheaply and effectively. Now all of a sudden, you know, Arc Nuclear could be at the forefront of of small modular nuclear reactors globally. So as of right now, Canada is actually the world's second largest uranium exporter. We supply about a fifth of the world's uh, uranium, which is pretty significant. It, it used to be that we would actually supply the reactors themselves. There was a lot of skepticism, um, you know, at the at the tail end of the 20th century about exporting, um, you know, nuclear technology worldwide, in part because of the dangers it posed, like a Chernobyl or Three Island uh, scenario, and, and because of the risk of weaponization. And for a while, we actually got really good at clamping down on nuclear proliferation. We actually saw a reduction in um, you know, ICBMs being created. We saw a reduction in the number of states ch- looking to chase um, nuclear uh, as a weapon. We were actually we're, were in a perfect spot to sort of restart a peaceful nuclear program. And unfortunately, kind of world events have conspired to fuck that up entirely. But, but suffice it to say, I don't think we can really have a sensible international um, peaceful nuclear kind of sharing agreement unless we take bigger steps to get rid of nuclear uh, proliferation in the arms space. Um, And Canada should be in a really good spot to do that, especially as America has sort of totally sacrificed its role as a leader on that. Um, And I'm I'm not really seeing it. So, you know, I think if we're going to start talking about exporting nuclear technology, it has to be coupled with Canada getting getting really good as a finger wagging, um, you know, lecturer in terms of making sure other states don't start going towards nuclear weaponry or looking to kind of to weaponize um, uranium or plutonium or whatever. 
my somewhat limited understanding is that actually with some of the fourth generation technology and the small modular reactors, they're actually built around reducing the risks of weaponization and proliferation. We still need to be talking about building bigger facilities as well. The reality is, is that these small modular reactors are potentially fantastic, but um, you're going to have a hard time powering, let's say, all of India on these small reactors. So again, it's a cocktail of different solutions, um, but it also has to be coupled with some good arms control if we're going to go into the nuclear space. That's it for Oppo this week. Tell us what you think. We love hearing from you. You can email us at oppo at com or tweet us at oppocast. And you can go like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you like us, you can rate us and leave us a review. We might even read them on air. Like this review by Edmduck. Love the banter and utterly appropriate use of the maybe not so occasional F-bomb. If I wanted to listen to hosts that blindly support the blunders our government makes at all levels, I'd turn to, well, everyone else. Also, maybe the only place one can get a true perspective on the sentiment of professional and reasonable people in the West. I'm the only one! Yay! Jen, thanks for demonstrating uh, that we are not all shit-kicking rednecks. I mean, a lot of us are shit-kicking rednecks. I think, actually, I really love the phrase shit-kicking rednecks and want it on a t-shirt. Can we get that on a t-shirt? Apple merch store. This next one is from Katie267. I'm not sure what the origin of that last name is, but it's unique. Katie267 says, We want more from the baby, less from the pundits. That's fair. I'll work on that for you. Create more babies. <laughs> this episode was produced by Laura Howells and David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Theme music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is baby. 